For the rest of us, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of 2 Corinthians. So if you need a Bible, we'd love to bring you a book so that you can follow along as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. About a, uh, almost a decade ago, I was leading a trip of college students to Turkey to encourage and learn from some missionaries there. And I remember we flew into Izmir, then we took about an eight-hour um, drive into the sort of the middle of Turkey. And uh, we then stayed for two days in this kind of smallish town in Turkey. It was just an average city in Turkey. And I don't mean it to say average in like a negative sense. I'm just saying there's 200,000 population about. There was no big industry. There was a university, but it wasn't the greatest university. It was just an average city. I don't even really remember the name of this city. And so we were walking around for a couple days, and then eventually we walked up to this sort of hill country that kind of looked down on the city, and we had lunch. And then the missionary said, hey, let's, let's just pray. But right before we began to pray, he prefaced his in this sort of prayer time with this. He said, as far as we know, there are no Christians in this city. And as far as we know, there is no organization, denomination, or parachurch mission organization that has thought to send missionaries to this city. The men and women of this city will probably live and die and never hear the name of Jesus. That's how we started our prayer time, just staring at this city 200,000 men and women and children and feeling just the weightiness of lostness. And I remember, though we never audibly asked this question, we really did feel the question, who is sufficient for these things? Ever feel that angst? Ever feel the emotion of that question? The feeling of inadequacy? The feeling of being like, I'm just not sufficient. Maybe you invite some neighbors over, some friends over. You're not sure if they're Christians or not. You just want to get to know them. And then all of a sudden you, you feed them and the kids are going off and tearing up the house. And you finally sit down to eat Pop Murphy's or whatever. And you begin to turn the conversation and get to know them and try to steer the conversation to find out their religious background and try to be gentle and kind and bold and zealous and dogged, and you're doing all of this while you're thinking in the back of your mind, I'm not really sufficient to do this. Or maybe a friend's struggling. They're asking those big existential questions, and you sit with them in their doubts, in their worries, in their questions, and some of them you're like, I don't know how to answer their questions. And you just feel, I'm not sufficient for this task. Or maybe your parents are getting older, your mom or your dad, and you realize that you're going to go visit them to encourage them, to thank them for their love for you, and you sit with them wondering, is this the last time I might have the opportunity to share Christ with them? And you wonder, am I sufficient for that task? Paul asked that very question in our text this morning. He felt the weight of that question. Was he sufficient 
for the things that God had called him to do, was he sufficient for the mission that God had commissioned him to accomplish? And actually, some in his day didn't think Paul was sufficient. They called into question his adequacy, his credentials. So Paul planted a church in Corinth, and Corinth was an interesting city. Uh, There's a lot of things we could say about the city of Corinth, but one of the things for our text today that's really interesting is that Corinth was an entertainment capital of this region. But they didn't like have the Olympics. It wasn't like that sort of thing. They had these famous people called orators or rhetoricians. And you're like, that's not really cool. But this was like the, the coolest thing of the day. So th- these men would, would stand in front of people and they would just dazzle you with their words. So think of them maybe like uh, rappers of their day, right? You ever, you ever watch those? You just like someone who's just really good at improvisational rapping and they just throw a word out and they can just rap for five minutes and it's beautiful and they're rhyming. It's a little bit like that. They would just stand and you'd just scream, butterfly, and for 20 minutes they would talk about butterflies such that you could just see and feel a butterfly. But they didn't just dazzle with their words. They, they actually would pump iron and work out and they'd wax their chests. We have, they just want to be outwardly beautiful to match the beauty of their words. And they were the celebrities of the day. So you had your, your favorite, you know, order and you'd follow them and they'd gather all these people to these huge stadiums. And that was the standard for public speaking in Paul's day. Problem was, Paul wasn't as gifted as they were. Paul wasn't as trained as they were. Paul's gift of gab wasn't sufficient according to Corinthian standards. Was Paul sufficient to speak into this church's life, to be a teacher in the early church? Was Paul sufficient for the task that God had called him to do? Should this church listen to Paul when he spoke authoritatively in their lives? Paul had a calling. Paul had a commission. Was he up to the task? Was he sufficient for this calling and this commissioning? But I don't want to just think about or answer the question about, is Paul sufficient for these things? I think we need to ask ourselves, as it comes to a Christian, as it comes to a Christian church, are we adequate? Are we sufficient for the work that God has called us to do? When it comes to the mission of making disciples of all nations, are we adequate? Are we sufficient? Are we up for the task? I'm not going to give you a big idea this morning because it's so simple, I feel like you'll just be preoccupied with this, but you're going to get it because I'm going to pound it into all of our hearts, Lord willing, for the next 30 minutes. But you'll see where I'm going with this. Read along with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, My spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads a triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. 
who is sufficient for these things. For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. I want to look at this in two parts, verses 12 and 13, and then 14 through 17. So first, let's look at what we can maybe describe as the insufficient life. That's Paul. I hope by the end you'd realize that's all of us. So to kind of briefly set the context, Paul wrote a letter to the church in Corinth. That's the letter of 1 Corinthians. Church in Corinth was a hot mess. They had a lot of problems. And so he writes this letter, and if you've read it recently, you know problem after problem after problem. He's correcting them. It's a letter of rebuke calling them to repent of their sins and follow Jesus in light of various things and controversies and divisions that were going on in that day. But Paul then heard that the church did not receive that letter well. And so he wrote a second letter that we do not have in which he called the severe letter. It was a intense letter calling them once more to listen to Paul's word, to repent, and to follow Jesus. Now, Paul could have shown up. Paul could have shown up. He had every right as an apostle to show up at the church of Corinth and in person call them to repentance. He doesn't do it. Instead, he sends a letter. And we know often why. Sometimes the worst thing you can do to sort of de-escalate conflict is to show up somewhere in person. And so sometimes the wisest thing you can do is to actually write someone a letter or an email or a text message. We know that pastorally. Any leader knows that, that just sometimes discretion involves starting to work on maybe conflict between two parties with writing a letter and then following up with in person. And so that's what Paul does. He sends a letter, and he sends this letter with Titus, who's a fellow co-worker of his, a fellow missionary. And he says, Titus, take this letter and go to Corinth, have them read it, and hopefully that letter will be enough to awaken the Corinthian church to the danger of what was going on in their church and call them to repentance and call them to be restored to both God and Paul. That was Paul's hope. So he sends this letter with Titus and he waits. We learn that in verse 13. Paul goes to Troas as a sort of a rendezvous point to meet up with Titus. So Titus went, took the letter, and then after delivering and finding the news, Titus was going to come back and they're both going to meet in Troas and find out the news. How did the Corinthian church respond to this letter? So in verse 12, Paul arrives in Troas, but he didn't just wait around, does he, right? It's Paul. So he's not just like, you know, getting a hotel room, just hanging out. He's got work to do. And so he begins to preach the gospel, and we learn, verse 12, that a door is open, which is just a, a fancy metaphor to say that as he preached the gospel, as he met people, God opened opportunities for him to continue to minister the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ in Troas. So, so the soil's great in Troas. It's just like a, a missionary's dream. It's like a, a preacher's aspiration. He's preaching, teaching, and opportunities just keep coming to him to make disciples there in Troas. And you're like, don't leave, Paul, right? right? You get to a place and you've got opportunities and people are responding to the gospel. You don't leave those places and yet Paul leaves. Paul couldn't stay in Troas even though ministry was going quite well. Even though there was opportunities 
glory, even though God had opened a door for the preaching of the gospel, Paul can't stay in Troas. And it's clear why. Titus hasn't returned. If you've ever sent a letter to to deal with conflict, maybe a a hard letter, a letter in love, and you don't know how they're going to respond and you're waiting, it is agonizing, isn't it? You just sit in the ambiguity of knowing how, how, how are they taking the letter? And so Paul is sitting there waiting for Titus to come back and he's like, I don't know how they responded. I, I don't know how they received it. I'm just waiting. Was I too severe? Was I clear? Did, did they sense my love in this letter? The language Paul uses in verse 13 is that Paul's spirit was not at rest. So Paul In his agony, he takes off from Troas and goes to Macedonia, which is like a little bit closer to Corinth. So he's like, maybe if I keep going, I'll meet up with Titus on his way back from Corinth to Troas. That's how much angst he has. He just needs to find out if this church responds well to this severe letter. Paul, in one sense, was miserable. Now, Paul suffered a lot, and this is one aspect of his suffering, but we often think of Paul's suffering in physical, like the the physical suffering that he went through. Um, If you put your finger here and go to 2 Corinthians 11, go, go to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. We read some of the, his suffering that he went through. Now, I'm going to read this, and I'm guessing none of us can relate to this sort of suffering, but this is Paul. We read 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. One frequent journeys in dangers from river, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. It's a lot of danger. In toil and in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and you're like, oh my gosh, no thank you. Not signing up for that life. But then all the suffering culminates, verse 28. And apart from these things, meaning, oh, I could go on, there's even more, but then even more so, verse 28, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. You ever notice that? As he lists all his suffering, it just kind of culminates in saying, oh, and then every day, the burden, the stress, the angst for my love for all these churches I planted. I mean, Paul suffered a lot because of the faithfulness of his preaching of the gospel in the first century, but he also suffered because he loved people so well, so deeply, so passionately. I think... In one sense, we ought to be able to relate to Paul. Hopefully a pastor, an elder, a deacon, a Christian can relate to Paul. Knows that spiritual angst. When you walk with someone and they're just really struggling, they're floundering. You walk with someone and they're just like not doing great. Relationships aren't doing great. They just stop fighting for the Christian walk. Given in to sin, marriages are falling apart, they're just on the outskirts of church. You walk with people, and aren't you just heart ache for them? 
knowing you're like, I'm trying. I, I don't know how to pull them in. I, I don't know how to answer their questions. I just don't feel sufficient for this. And you just feel restless, angst. Love does this. Love ought to do this. And Paul feels this. It's not just Paul. I mean, doesn't this sort of restless soul remind you of someone else? Isn't this the beauty of the Christian gospel? I mean, you see it in the garden with Jesus. Just that emotional angst out of love for people and knowing what love is going to cost him in his death. You just see the heart of Christ in the garden. Or think of Matthew 14, verse 14. So Jesus, in the scene, he withdraws on a boat, and he's like, I need to get to a desolate place to, to, to be with my heavenly Father. And people just follow him like annoying flies, wherever he goes. And he finally leaves this desolate place. He lands at shore, and all these people come flooding back into his life. Jesus can't even just get out a minute by himself. And instead of being annoyed by people, we read, he sees the crowd, Matthew 14, 14, and he has compassion on them. I mean, wherever Jesus went, he felt human sadness, human pain. Problem after problem after problem he encountered with people, and yet wherever Jesus went, he spread the contaminant of God's compassion to people. And this is even more evident not just as he healed people and loved people and fed people and cared for people, but when he went straight into the storm as he marched to Jerusalem, straight into Satan's trap and Pilate's ploy, his love led him to the cross where he died for undeserving people. You see, Paul, because of his love for the Corinthians, he ran from Troas to Macedonia in a far greater way. Because of God's love, Jesus ran from heaven, we could say, to earth and died on a cross because his spirit could not rest until he made a way for humanity and God to be reconciled once again. Paul looks pretty insufficient. Jesus dying on a cross might look insufficient to you as well. But God is taking the insufficiency of our world and turning it on its head. He took what looked like death and he turned it into triumph. He took what looked like weakness. Paul kind of looks weak. Can't you just stay in Troas? The ministry is going great. It's like, I gotta go. I gotta find out. I just need to know. My love is just pushing me to Macedonia. It looks like weakness. His weakness was just a manifestation of his love. Now that's Paul's insufficiency. But it really is modeled after something beautiful. It's really modeled after the gospel. God taking what looks like insufficiency and turning it into triumph. And that's the thing that really Paul wants to impress theologically on us in verses 14 through 17. So we sort of transition from Paul's sort of insufficiency that he kind of embraces to then a model of insufficiency, verses 14 and 15. So go, go, go back to 2 Corinthians. Look at verse 14 and 15. 
But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us to a triumphal procession, and through us spreads a fragrance in the knowledge of him everywhere. Paul, in this section, what he's going to do is he's going to use two big metaphors, this idea of triumphal procession and this idea of fragrance or aroma. And these two metaphors work the same way. They function the same way. They sort of get fleshed out in the same way, and they point to the same reality. The Christian holds within themselves, within their identity, two realities that these metaphors display. Life and death, victory and failure, sufficiency and insufficiency. And Paul's trying to get this paradox out. So let's just kind of kind of work through these two metaphors. Verse 14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us to a triumphal procession. Now in Paul's day, a nation would fight against another nation. And let's say one nation would beat another nation. So what would happen is they would then come back to their nation and to their maybe capital city and they would march through the streets and all the citizens of the winning nation would come out and cheer, you know, yes, our soldiers are back. We won. And the, you know, the the general would be on his war horse at the very front, and then you'd have the, the smell of victory on the clothes of the soldiers that won. But then behind them, in this long triumphal procession, would be the captives from the nation that lost. And they'd be marched, marched to their shame as they're jeered at and laughed at and shamed. You lost, haha. And they'd be slowly marched up to the capital, and eventually, a lot of times, they would be killed. That's what a triumphal procession is. We don't do this, okay? Right? Like, the Seahawks don't lose the Super Bowl, and we don't, like, do that, where all the Seahawks fans and the players, like, shamefully are just cowered down as they march, you know, through the streets of, you know, when the Patriots won. We don't do that kind of stuff. But if you watch, like, old war movies, if you watch World War II movies when like uh, Americans would you know go into uh, a city in France and they would you know kick out the German soldiers whatever what would happen now, you would see all of a sudden the soldiers and the tanks going through the city and they're cheering and then you'd see the prisoner wars in the back it's a similar sort of idea here and Paul thanks God that he is in this triumphal procession notice not as the general that's Christ metaphor works like that. Jesus is the head. He's the general. So then where is Paul in relationship to this triumphal procession? Well, there's ambiguity, isn't there? Is he the victorious soldier in Christ's army, or is he the captive, the prisoner of war? And the answer, and Paul loves to do this, is yes, right? He, he, he does this all the time, right? I am a slave of righteousness, He's putting these two realities. He is the captive and he's the victor all in one. And then we have this second metaphor about spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Verse 15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one, a fragrance from death to death and the other, a fragrance of life to life. So Paul moves from the triumphal procession to this fragrance, this aroma now, if you read the Old Testament, you know that this is sacrificial language. So in the temple, there were sacrifices, and the aroma of that sacrifice would, would fill the temple, fill the tabernacle, and then rise up out, and it would be in worship, in true worship of God, it would be a pleasing fragrance to God. 
But here he's saying that Christ's sacrifice, Jesus' death, is the pleasing sacrifice, the pleasing smell, the pleasing fragrance to God. But then in faith, that smell has now rubbed off on Paul. And by extension, all those who have put their faith in Jesus. You ever been around that, not that person who wears a lot of perfume? You give them one hug and the rest of the day you just smell like them? You know what I'm talking about? That's the sort of idea here. When you put your faith in Christ, when you're captivated and conquered by Christ, when he calls you into his family, you begin to smell like Jesus. It sounds kind of odd. This is not like literal. But I think you know what this means. If you've ever traveled and you've just like been on a plane or gone to another country and you meet someone, you're like, I don't know what it is. I don't even speak your language or culture, but there's just something about you. And then you're like, are you a Christian? And they're like, "Uh uh-huh. And you're like, I knew it. Ever had that experience? The aroma of Christ is in connection with our union with Christ. But just like this metaphor of triumphal procession works in two ways, he's saying that I'm a captive and I'm also victorious in Christ. Well, the smell works in two ways too, doesn't it? I mean, smells metaphorically do one of two things. Good smells make you lean in. Bad smells make you lean out. So you smell a flower and you're like, that smells good. You lean in. But if you go on vacation, you forget to throw the leftovers out and you open up the fridge, you instantly, as the smell of death kind of just flows out of the fridge, you lean out. Smells do that. Smell is sort of reflexive. It makes you either lean in or out. And Paul says that because you smell like Christ, that smell is going to go out, and to some, they're going to lean in because it's going to smell good. To others, they're going to reflect because it smells bad. And if you've ever wondered, why is it that some people, when they think of Jesus, when they think of the church, when they think of Christianity, they instantly are like, boring, not cool, not great, not interested, just reflexively? Well, here it is. To some, the smell of the gospel. For some, the smell of Christ. For some, the call and preaching of the gospel smells great. It smells like life. It smells like goodness. To others, just reflexively, it smells like death. Well, wherever Paul went, wherever Paul went preaching and teaching, he went teaching and this aroma just followed him. He was the conquered one who was conquered by Christ so long ago on the road to Damascus. He found victory and triumph with his union in Christ. And he wasn't the best teacher. He wasn't the best speaker. He wasn't probably the best leader. He was, in one sense, insufficient. Verse 17. In contrast to his insufficiency, Others were sufficient. They were peddlers of God's word. They would make lots of money off of, off of God's word. And he says, I'm not even in that business. I'm not like those famous orders. They just entertain. Paul can't compete with them. But wherever he goes, either from Troas, Macedonia, or Corinth, he just spreads the fragrance of Christ wherever he goes. He just speaks Christ. He teaches Christ because he's powered, empowered by Christ. 
Not his words, not his gifts, not this entertaining prowess, not his good looks. He's empowered, or we could put it this way, his sufficiency comes by the message that he speaks. The message, as verse 17 says, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. Paul isn't sufficient because of his gifts, as it were. Paul is insufficient. Self-sufficiency, if I could put the big idea in one thing, self-sufficiency is overrated. I mean, who is sufficient for these things? And as it relates to spiritual matters, if you're like, in life, I am sufficient. I got enough money and wisdom and friends. I am sufficient. There is no good news in the church for you. The church are for those who are insufficient, who realize that their sufficiency comes not in their might, not in their power, not in their words or their gifts, their talents, or their money. Their sufficiency comes through Jesus Christ. Self-sufficiency, it's, it's overrated. I mean, there are lots of things I feel sufficient to do. I can make scrambled eggs pretty good. I'm sufficient in that. Like, I can read. I'm sufficient to read. I can drive. Most people would say I'm sufficient in that. But as it relates to making disciples, as it relates to seeing people come from darkness to light, as it results to standing up here, using your words to persuade someone to put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ and see them actually put their faith in Christ, who is sufficient for any of this? I mean, how do you reach your neighborhood? With all the diversity of their religions and worldviews and questions and barriers and defenses, are you sufficient in order to do this? All their questions. Is your life perfectly suited so that if people look at your life, they're going to be like, oh, I want whatever they have. Are you sufficient? Just in and of yourself and your character, your holiness, your, your goodness? Can you use words to just dazzle people? And when you talk about the Bible, it just is so clear. And everyone's like, oh, yes, keep teaching me the Bible. Or are you even insufficient in how you disciple your children? Sometimes you're like, that was real bad. That Bible study, that small group, that discussion, real, real bad. Who is sufficient? Do you have enough wisdom to know how to perfectly match the truth of the gospel with people's questions? Do you, do you have the wisdom enough to say, okay, their personality, I'm going to conform maybe my personality to their personality. Do, are you sufficient for any of this? Is our church sufficient for the very thing that God has called us to do? I mean, don't you feel your insufficiency? Our church should feel our insufficiency. And yet, Paul says his sufficiency comes not because he's got this great gift, his sufficiency comes when he realizes, one, he is insufficient, and two, in Christ, that's all the sufficiency he needs. That's his hope. That none of us are sufficient in ourselves. But the secret sauce, the secret sauce is Christ is sufficient. Wherever Paul went, he just spread the fragrance of Christ in word and deed. Wherever he went, he just talked about Jesus incessantly. He didn't know who would 
smell his teaching and go, that smells good. And who would smell the teaching and say, that does not smell good. He had no idea to know how people would respond. He just kept spreading the fragrance of Christ wherever he went, like a bee pollinating flower after flower after flower. And then he just stood back and looked at the harvest of what God had done. And that's our, that's our mission as well. I mean, we, we don't know what's around the corner. I wish I was a, a prophet. I'm really bad at predicting the future, like real, real bad. You know, like, are we in the Shire or are we in Mordor? I have no idea. But I do know this. Wherever we're at, wherever God has sovereignly placed us in, we can spread the aroma of Christ which to some is going to smell like life. It's going to smell amazing. And others, they're going to say, thanks, but no thanks. And we shouldn't be angry at that. After all, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, the fragrance of death to death. The other, a fragrance from life to life. We're not sufficient, but Christ is. And our sufficiency flows from him. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we bank not on our own gifts and might and sufficiency. We, we are banking everything that you are sufficient to save us. You are sufficient to call us. You are sufficient to persevere us. You are sufficient to bring us home. So help us to trust you more. Help us to rely on you more. Help us to be humble And Lord, help us to, to continue in perseverance to, to live out the calling and mission that you called our, every church and our church in particular to just make disciples, to keep encouraging one another to following Jesus. We pray that we do this with greater faithfulness. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.